wanted to uh, I want to address something this morning in in the teaching time that uh, <clears throat> I think is uh, one of the difficult things about being a Christian. And uh, I don't know everybody in the room. In fact, with the lighting, I can't even always see all the faces in the room. So I don't even know who all's here and what your story is. So, but I'm going to assume that it's Sunday morning, and so a high percentage of us are Christians. And uh, I think one of the difficult things about being a follower of Jesus Christ, oftentimes as we read God's Word, and as other believers come into our lives, and as we build relationships, and as we listen to sermons, and we have discussions in groups, sometimes in our quiet time with God, or we're alone, and we feel this prompting, like God wants us to do something. And most of the time, when God prompts us to do something, He doesn't tell us why. You ever notice that? Have you ever noticed that when God promised you to do something, you don't often get the why behind the what, right? I wish there were more here's why verses in the Bible. Because you get the, I, I like the thou shalt not and here's why. I'd be a whole lot better with the thou shalt not if he would give me the why. Or I'd like to think I would be, you know. Uh, thou shalt not and here's what happens <clears throat> if you do it or here's what happens if you don't do it. Uh, here's what will happen. But unfortunately, there aren't a lot of those verses and so consequently, we find ourselves as Christians, or maybe, maybe you wouldn't even really consider yourself a Christian this morning. Maybe you're, you know, you're a spiritual person, but you're not a religious person. Uh, but even for you, sometimes you have, like, you feel like something or someone kind of drawing you or pushing you or coaxing you in a certain direction. And as you begin to think about that, and maybe uh, become a little more open to God in your life, and you're thinking, you know, yeah, but what about all the rules? Okay, what about all these expectations? And why in the world, if I'm going to be a Christian, why do I have to do these things and not do all these other things? I mean, uh, you, you, why do I need to think this way and not think a certain way? I mean, you want you want me to apologize, God? I mean, you want me? You, they I don't need to apologize. They need to apologize. You want me to forgive? Uh, that's probably not happened because do you know what they did to me? You want me to be honest in my business? God, I mean, do you know I'll go out of business if I have to totally change my business practices? There are all sorts of things over the whole range of the spectrum that as we evaluate our circumstances and look at our lives and look at what God's Word has to say, and as we're trying to be sensitive to what God says and what we believe God is asking us to do, sometimes it just doesn't line up with the circumstances of our lives. Sometimes what we think God is asking us to do just doesn't seem to make sense. And once again, God just doesn't always tell us why. And, and I think we've kind of fooled ourselves, I know I have, kind of fooled ourselves into thinking that if we knew why, then we would be more likely to do what he's asking us to do. Like somehow a little more information uh, would, would make me more willing to cooperate. But I have come to uh, accept and, and acknowledge that more information doesn't necessarily result in cooperation. Sometimes even when we do know why, we still say no. But a little information wouldn't hurt. That'd be nice. I mean, I, I tend to think a, a little information would help a lot. I mean, for me, I just wish God would say, and here's why. But he rarely does that, so we're left to decide if we're going to obey him. The movie that came out in 1990, how many of you remember 1990? Okay. <clears throat> and those of you who don't are like, they had movies? There's a scene, I think, is kind of a picture of what God is like. The movie is The Hunt for Red October. When you ever saw that hunt for Red October? And you former Navy guys, don't start on me about all the inconsistencies and how this couldn't have possibly happened. Okay, it's a movie. It's Hollywood. So you've, some of you have seen the movie. How many of you have seen the movie? Let me see. I'm curious. All right, how many of you have read the book? 
Anyway, what book? The Hunt for Red October is a story of a Russian submarine. The story is set in 1984. Sean Connery is, plays the, his character as the captain of the sub, and he decides to defect to the United States. So he basically hijacks his own Russian nuclear submarine, and he's got his whole crew there, and they're like, where's the mission taking us today? And he's like, oh, I think we'll head over towards American waters. And, and he goes out into international waters, and he surfaces the submarine, and a U.S. Navy patrol intercepts him, and he basically says, oh, good, because I'm defecting, and if you want my submarine, here are the keys. So they take all of his men off, and they're, they're kind of wondering what's going on, and they put some American officers on the Russian sub with their captain, with, with the, the sub's captain, Sean Connery, and everything's uh, going fine, and they're looking at the sub, and they're learning what they need to learn to bring the sub back to the United States, when suddenly from out of nowhere, someone fires a torpedo at Red October, and no one knows what's going on. So you got Sean Connery's character, and the captain, I can't remember his name, the captain of the Russian sub, and some American officers, and a journalist on board, and all of a sudden, there's a submarine battle going on. You getting excited yet? Because this is 1990 action movie. So uh, we're going to get to the Bible part in just a minute, so hang on. Uh, and they, they realize that what's happened is that another Russian sub <clears throat> followed them, and they figured out what's going on. So they've been given orders now to destroy the Red October so that the U.S. Navy doesn't get their hands on this top-secret Russian nuclear submarine. So they're trying to blow up their own submarine now and everybody in it. And right in the middle of this submarine battle, the American captain who's taken over the Red October orders his crew to do a very unusual thing. In fact, he orders them to do something that makes absolutely no sense at all. And it looks like an order that is just going to result in total annihilation. And when I think about this scene, I can so identify with this crew because I've felt exactly what those crewmen were feeling. I felt like, God, what you've asked me to do is to steer into danger, to go against common sense, and even to go against what maybe I've been taught. And I've been led through your word and through good counsel and through prayer, and I'm confident this is what you're led, you've led me to do, God, but it just doesn't make any sense. So the captain tells them to turn the sub directly into the path of the torpedo. And sometimes I feel like, God, when I, I read your word and I try to be sensitive to your spirit, and sometimes I feel like I'm being led right into the path of an incoming torpedo. It just doesn't make any sense. He orders the sub to turn into the direction of the torpedo, and all through the scene, we have no idea why, until the crew has done as the captain has ordered, and it all makes sense. Here's the scene. Watch this. Torpedo! 
So if you don't know exactly what happened there, because he didn't get all the context, and it maybe didn't set you up very well, um, you're going to have to go find that movie somewhere, because this is not about Hunt for Red October, so I'm not going to tell you what exactly happened there. Um, doesn't really matter. You can always read the book, too. So uh, here's the deal. We're talking about things that God asks us to do that don't make any sense. Maybe, maybe you're divorced and you know what the Bible has to say about marriage and sex and celibacy. And for the most part, you would agree that sex is for marriage and you've rationalized your choices because, you know, God, that's great for high school students and that's great for young adults, but uh, this isn't going to work for me. You know, I'm a grown adult and we love each other and we're committed and we don't have the official paperwork. Big deal. Doesn't make, this doesn't make any sense to me, God. Or you're in a marriage and you're convinced, you know, he's never going to change. She's never going to change. Don't I deserve to be happy? I'm out of here. I can't wait around forever for, for maybe, maybe God to do something. I've got a life to live. And yet in your heart, you know that God is saying, no, no, you stay. You be the one who changes. And our response to that is, well, this doesn't make any sense. Or maybe God's calling you to make a change in your schedule to work less, to make less money, to free up some time so you can be fully present with your spouse and with your kids and to care for your parents and to serve in the church on another level and be available to do short-term missions with your church. And maybe God's leading you to leave the security of your business or your career to go work for a nonprofit, and it just doesn't make any sense. Maybe God wants you to become a follower of Christ, and you're thinking, well, what if my friends find out? I mean, they don't even know I'm here today, and I'm not posting that on Facebook right now. What if my coworkers knew I was religious? I mean, you know, you're not so sure. But you know there's a void in your soul and there's a hunger in your heart and you're feeling drawn. But again, sometimes it's like God is saying, well, I, I think you, I, you need to steer right into the torpedo. And I know, I know, I know, I know. Just, just trust me. And, and we're thinking, well, if you would just show me why, if you would just, uh, you know, kind of let me in on your plan a little bit that, and show me how it's all going to work out, then I'd be right there, God. <clears throat> or maybe God's pushing you to be more consistent about being in church on Sundays. And you know it's not about getting a star in your chart and a perfect attendance ribbon. You know it's about you benefit from being in this setting, and you should make it a more regular part of your life. And sometimes it's just so inconvenient, and you've had to, you've had to work all week or all night, or you know, you've had a, you've got a busy weekend going on, and the weather is so nice, and the fish, I'm sure, are biting, and the lake is definitely calling, or your kids have sports, you know, again, or you're tired, or, or you know, you're just, you're just not that committed. And you're here when it's convenient, but for the most part, you love it when you're here, but you're not ready to give up some of these other things. And right now, maybe that's the real battle going on, that you're fighting with God. But every once in a while, you hear a sermon, you read God's Word, you read a book, you have a conversation with another believer, you listen to a song, you hear somebody's story, this thing comes up, and you feel this gentle, trust me, obey me, trust me, obey me, trust me, obey me. Let me let you in on a little secret. <clears throat> It's kind of a big deal. It's a pretty central uh, part of Christianity. We, we could talk about this for weeks uh, because it's just, it's just so easy to miss. Listen to this. This could be liberating, especially, I would say, especially if you're a high school student. God's ultimate agenda for your obedience is not your cooperation. In other words, the reason God wants you to obey him is not just so he can get you to cooperate with him. You know, like, wow, I finally, finally got them in line. You know, now who, that project's done. Who else need, do I need to work on? <clears throat> and we feel sometimes like, okay, 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 I'm a Christian. I'm doing the 27 things I'm supposed to be doing. And God's going, no, no, no. My ultimate agenda for you as a follower of Christ, my ultimate agenda for you in wanting you to obey is not your cooperation. God's goal isn't that we would all act right. If God's goal for us, think about this, was for us to all act right, 
I think targeted lightning bolts would be very effective. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of ways that would be more effective if getting us to act right was the deal, if that was the goal. But it's not his ultimate agenda. God is after something else. And that is precisely why so oftentimes he does not tell us the why behind the what. If you have your Bible uh, and you're sitting under a light, or if you have your phone, if you have a smartphone and you have a Bible app, and if, if you don't have the Bible app, you should download it right now. You've got Wi-Fi right here. Download it right now. Go to your app store and look for Bible app. You'll find the one by Uversion, or by a Life Church, and uh, download that right now, and you'll have it before we get to this, finish reading the Scripture. Um, that's what smartphones are for. They're to read your Bible wherever you want to. That's what they're for. <clears throat> Anyway, we're going to look at a story that maybe you've never heard, or maybe you heard it and you uh, remember the flannel graph from Sunday school. Maybe this is that. Maybe you you know the story quite well. <clears throat> Second Kings, chapter five. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Second Kings. Okay. Second Kings, chapter five is in the Old Testament. It's in that part of the Old Testament that is a little bit dry and repetitive, and then you're like, boom, there's a story, and then there's a bunch of battles and some bloody things going on and some babies being born and some people dying and then boom there's a story second kings chapter five this is an awesome story illustrates god's ultimate agenda behind wanting us to obey him god is up to something beyond our cooperation we discover it in this story so i'm going to begin reading um, while you're looking for it and downloading it and it's also on the screen so here we go and we'll sort of narrate narrate our way through this second kings chapter five verse one now naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. The kingdom of Aram was up to the northeast of Israel, and this man, Naaman, was the captain of the army, very highly respected, had been a great military leader for his king, but now he had leprosy. Verse 2. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Here's what would happen on a pretty regular basis. Every spring, the Arameans would put together raiding parties, and they would cross the border into Israel and they would steal anything they could get their hands on, gold, silver, crops, women, children. And on one of those raids, they'd stolen this little girl. We don't know how old she was, but young enough that before long, she considered her new masters like parental figures. They were friends and parental figures, Naaman and his wife. And she was old enough that she could remember some things about her home. Um, she remembered that there was a prophet in Israel in Samaria specifically, and she believed that if her master, Naaman, could ever get to this guy, he would be cured of his leprosy. So she goes to her mistress and says, if the master would go to Samaria, there's a great man there who would heal him of his leprosy. And, and you know what? When you had a leprosy diagnosis, there weren't a lot of options. This wasn't a great plan, okay? You know, we're going to go to our enemies and say, could you do us a favor? I mean, yeah, your, your number one enemy is, is sick, so could you heal him, and uh, we'll be back in the spring to raid you again, so just get ready. You know, it's not a great plan, but it's leprosy, so there are no options. Here's what happened, verse 4. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. 
So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Do you know why they took clothing? Because clothing was extremely valuable. Everything was handmade. People basically had one set of clothes, okay? It's extremely valuable. So I can just imagine the picture, you know? He's got a bunch of gold, he's got a bunch of silver, he's got like this rack of clothes on the back of this wagon behind some camel or something. I don't know how, what, but I don't know how you do that. But verse 6, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant, my servant Naaman to you so that you, <clears throat> yeah, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Imagine you're the king of Israel. There's a knock on your door. Who is it? Uh, your majesty, you have a visitor. Well, who is it? Uh, sir, it's Naaman. Naaman? It's, sir, he has, a, he has a letter from his king, and he's come to ask a favor. So they read this letter. I'm sending you my servant Naaman so that you might heal him. Okay, get, this is how they thought back then. <clears throat> they thought God, king, people, dirt. Okay? God, king, people, dirt. You have a God, I have a God. Everybody's got a God. You have a king, I have a king. Everybody's got a king. And they believed that their gods worked through their kings. Some kings thought they were God. So when the king of Aram uh, heard that there was a powerful man in Israel, he just assumed it was the king. So he sends Naaman and all this gold and the silver and a new wardrobe to see the king. And when the king of Israel sends, uh, reads the letter, he knows this isn't going to work out well. Verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow summon someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See, now he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. You want me to do what? I mean, heal you of leprosy. And then he realizes, oh, this is a trick. Because you know I can't heal leprosy. You know, you go back to your king and tell the king, the powerful man in Israel wouldn't heal him, uh, uh, heal, heal you of your leprosy, and then you get all mad. Now you've got a reason you're going to come down and raid us a second time this year kind of deal. You're just trying to pick a fight with me. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Because tearing the robes was a sign of anguish and grief and frustration. And didn't we just say that clothes were really... Uh, expensive and valuable. Have the man come to me, Elisha says, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots. He had the army with him. And imagine what he thought. He stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Use your imagination for a minute. We don't know where Elisha lived. Imagine he's in some little town and you're outside, you know, you're outside sweeping your porch or mowing your lawn and you look up and on the outskirts of the town there's a cloud of dust. And you watch and you realize it's horses and chariots. And what do you think? You think, hide the women and children. The Arameans are coming again. It's not raid season, but here they come again. And everyone's probably scurrying around. I imagine they finally come roaring into town. And they got chariots. they got their number one guy. They have all this gold and silver and racks of clothing. Looks like they'd already been on a raid. And they'd come down through the town. And I imagine the streets are like deserted by now. And they pull up in front of Elisha's house. Nobody. Nobody's around. Then an interesting thing happened, verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And he went back into his house. 
That's it. I come all this way. What? I'm an important person. I could crush this town. And Naaman immediately thinks what we would think and what we often think when God asks us to do something and what we often think when God asks us to, when he is pushing us and, and coaxing us and, and, and prompting us. And it's, well, well, that doesn't make any sense. I have leprosy. I don't need a bath. I don't see any connection between my issue and what you're asking me to do. And because I don't see any connection, there must not be any connection. I think you're making fun of me. I think you're mocking me here in front of my men. You've asked me to do this ridiculous thing. And the Bible says that Naaman is furious. Story goes on, verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought, see, he had an expectation. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. He said, look, I had this thing figured out. I mean, I'm going to show up. Elisha's going to come out. We're so honored to have you in our little town. And we're so grateful that today you are not stealing our stuff and our wives and our children this time. You are such a great man. And we are so honored that he would bring out his big black cauldron and puts in pig's feet and some goat's ears and he'd do some chanting and make some kind of potion and there'd be he'd call on his god and the smoke would billow and he'd give him a potion and that would cure him of his leprosy instead elisha doesn't even have the courtesy to come to the door himself and talk to him he sends his intern to the front door and says go down elisha says go down to the jordan river dip seven times you'll be cleansed of your leprosy And he is just furious because this doesn't make any sense. He's like, I don't see the connection. It's like, hey, God, I'm lonely as it is. That's why I'm here. And now you're expecting me just because we're not legally married. You're asking me to move out. I don't see the connection. When I look at my dilemma, that doesn't make any sense, God. God, I'm already having financial trouble. I've been asking you for months to help me find another job, a second job, a third job, and you want me to give money? You want me to make less so I can spend more time with my family? What? God, I've finally got all the state benefits I can get, and you're saying get a job? That doesn't make any sense. I've finally got things the way I want them. God, I don't know what to say to my teenagers, to my young adult children, and you're suggesting that I have an actual conversation about the direction of their lives and about their relationship with you? God, I can't even talk to them about their music and their friends and their video games. I mean, it's like they're aliens living in my house. I don't even speak their language anymore. And you're asking me to do what? Fortunately, Naaman had someone around him who I hope you have around you, and I hope I always have around me. He has someone around him who had the courage to speak into his anger truth, to bring into his unreasonableness an element of reason. The people in his situation happened to be his servants. Look what happens, verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? 
In other words, Naaman, whoa, 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 whoa. If this guy had come out and said, in order to be healed of leprosy, you must slay the seven-headed dragon with your bare hands, you know, and then go back to Aram and bring all the stuff that you've stolen and all the women and children and kid that you've kidnapped, bring them back to me. Would you have done that? They said, if you would have been willing to do a great thing or to do a difficult thing, why not do this simple thing? Why not try it? What have you got to lose, Naaman? Can I pause the story and ask you a question? God has asked some of you to do a simple thing. You're not sure it's going to work out? It seems like a waste of time, waste of energy. You might have to give up your pride. You might have to sacrifice your image. It might take a hit. But really, that's about it. Besides, like Naaman, you know, nothing's getting better the way it is. So here's my question. So what really do you have to lose? What do you really have to lose by doing this one simple thing that God is prompting you to do? We think there's so much to lose by trusting God. There's, there's far less to lose than we think. That was Naaman's situation. So finally, he decides to go for this crazy idea, verse 14. So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. If you had cancer and someone said, go down to the Union River and dip in it seven times and you'll be cured of your cancer... And you come up out of the water and the doctor says, hmm, I don't know what's going on. You don't have cancer anymore. What would you do? This is the punchline, okay? This is the point. This is the thing. This is where God wants to bring me over and over in my life and where God wants to bring you over and over in your life. This is the agenda behind obeying him. God is not simply committed to controlling your behavior. That would be easy, lightning bolt. You know, God is after far more than that. He sent Jesus to die for your sins, not so that he could have control of you. He sent Jesus to die for you and to rise from the dead in order to pave the way for something far more significant than that. And oftentimes asking us to do an unusual thing, to ask us to do the unexpected, asking us to do things that don't seem to connect to the issues and our needs and the solution to our situation is the very thing God uses to accomplish his purposes, his agenda for our lives. Look what happens, verse 15. And Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. And he stood before him and said, Now I know. Before this, he didn't know. I didn't know. I'd heard some stuff. But now I know that there's no God in all the world. I didn't come here to figure this out. I didn't come with this question. I didn't show up at your doorstep to learn about God. I came to be cleansed of my leprosy. Man, oh man, now I know that there's no God in all the world except in Israel. You know what God's agenda is in obedience? It's not to control your behavior. It's to get your faith, as small as it is, to intersect with his faithfulness. Because in that moment, you experience God. When your faith and his faithfulness intersect, you experience God, your heavenly Father. When your faith and his faithfulness intersect, something happens in you that will overshadow what has happened around you and what has happened to you. And you won't go home rejoicing simply over the fact that the leprosy is gone. He doesn't even mention that. 
You'll go home rejoicing over the fact that the God of the universe knows about me. The God of the universe touched down in my life. You won't believe what happened after I got out of that relationship. You won't believe what happened in my finances. You won't believe what happened in my influence. You won't believe what happened. I met God. And that is God's not-so-hidden agenda. It's not to control and conform your behavior, because that would be simple. But he sent his son to die and to be resurrected, to have a relationship with you. And good relationships are built around trust. Trust is the currency of relationships. And God will often call on us to do the unusual things or to push us out beyond what we're comfortable with or lead us to do something that doesn't even seem to have anything to do with our present situation in order to teach us to trust him. Because he knows that in the moment that we finally say, I'm going to trust you, in that moment, something happens in our relationship. And that's what God is after. Naaman shows up to get rid of leprosy, and he meets God. He didn't think he was showing up with a spiritual problem. He knew he was showing up with a physical problem. He had a terminal disease. He had a circumstantial problem. God asked him to do something unusual, and he went home saying, I have met God. Naaman showed up asking God to change his circumstances. How many times have we done that? And God changed Naaman. Naaman was hoping to go home with a story about being healed from leprosy, and he couldn't even imagine now going home to tell his king and his, his, king and his friends and his family, I found God. He didn't know. He didn't know what hung in the balance of his decision. And you don't know. You don't know what hangs in the balance of your decision of whether or not to trust and obey God in the area where he's nudging, nudging, nudging you right now. And you might think, but this thing has nothing to do with my presenting problem. God knows I have leprosy, but he's asking me to do this? I don't get it. And you think you know what hangs in the balance. We think we know. It's like, yeah, I know what hangs in the balance. I'll be lonely. I know what hangs in the balance. I'll be poor. I know what hangs in the balance. I'll drive a crappy car. I know what happens, what hangs in the balance. I'll never get that promotion. I know what hangs in the balance. I'll never get married. I know what hangs in the balance. She'll walk all over me for the rest of my life. I know what hangs in the balance. I'll look like a fool. I know what hangs in the balance. My friends will think I'm a weirdo. I know what hangs in the balance. I'll lose my reputation. You, you do not know what hangs in the balance because you do not know ultimately what God wants to do in you and through you. We just don't know. Listen to what happens at the end of this story. Verse 15. This is Naaman speaking to Elisha. So please accept the gift from your servant. And the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Verse 17, if you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. Why does, why does he want dirt? For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. It's like, buddy, I believe. And I don't just believe here when I'm with you. I'm going to keep on believing when I get back home. So if you give me some dirt, I want to take some dirt back to my dirt and I'm going to go out in my backyard and I'm going to put your dirt over my dirt because God obviously hovers over your dirt. Uh, so maybe I'll, if I can take some of your dirt home with me, maybe he'll hover over me there. 
I, I know it's crazy. I'm sure it, it's not great theology, but that's what he was thinking. He had become a worshiper of the God of Israel, of Jehovah God, and he's abandoned his false gods. Why? Because he came looking for God? Nope. Because his little bitty faith that he didn't even know he had intersected with the faithfulness of God. And he was a changed man. That's the life God has called us to. And it's over and over and over and over. Teenagers, 20-somethings, I want you to listen to me. Just listen to me. For, listen to this. I know everything in your world revolves around three or four things. I get that. You know, what are people going to say? You know, what if, what if I never experienced this? Or what if I never, you know, and everybody that and something. Listen, you don't know what hangs in the balance of your decision to remain, remain faithful to God. You don't know. You don't know what hangs in the balance of your obedience to God. You think you know, but you don't know. And you won't know until someday you come to the place where you say, God, this doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything, but I trust you, and I'm going to watch and see what you do. <clears throat> We'd rather wait until God does something good for us. We'd like a guarantee somehow that it's all going to work out and, and you know, the way that we want them to. Um, and, and Romans 8.28, by the way, you know, all things work together for the good of those who are, love God and are called. Yeah, that doesn't mean that things always work out just the way you want them to work out. It means that everything happens for a reason, but not always for the reason that you think or that you want, okay? But that's another sermon for another day or two. We would, we would rather God say, you know, I want you to do this, and when you do, you're going to land your dream job. Oh. And when you do, your relationship thing is going to work out. Oh. Oh, I get it now. And when you do, everybody's going to live like happily ever after. And when you do, all your friends are going to be so impressed with you, and they're going to want to be just like you, and they're all going to become Christians. I mean, how hard would it be to trust God and to say yes to him every time if we could get some guarantees like that? But God says, no, 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 no. I want you to know me. I want you to experience me. So let's build some trust. I want you to be able to look back and that thing you were so unsure about and say, that was a God thing. See, the moment God gives us something good on the other side, he loses something very valuable to him. He loses our undivided attention. If he were to say, you break up with him, oh, there's Mr. Wright right across the room. He's waiting for you. If God were to say, if you give me some money here, it'll come back to you tenfold by the end of the week, and here's how I'm going to do it. If you'll change your business practices and work on your integrity, your profit margins are going through the roof. If you'll be the one person at the party who's living by a different standard, you will be the most popular person you know. But God isn't into just controlling our behavior. He wants us to learn to trust him. So it's God's way. Remember Abraham? Before he was Abraham? When he was Abram and God said, I want you to pack up everything you own and get your people all together. I want you to move. It's like, where are we going? Oh, I'll tell you when we get there. Let's go. Remember Moses? Moses, go, go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. What? What was that? Hmm? What? You want me to do what? I mean, say what? I mean, what? What do I say? Moses, trust me, just go. They'll make movies about you later, you know? <laughs> Remember Noah? You want me to do what? I mean, it's going to do Did you say rain? I, I've never, I don't know what that is, but it sounds pretty scary to me. Stuff falling out of the sky. Noah, just build it. Trust me. Remember Adam and Eve? 
we can't do what now? Just stay away from that one tree. I don't understand. That doesn't make sense. Why not? I mean, what's the big deal? Just trust me. <clears throat> what is it that God is pressing you to do? What is it that God's been leading and prompting you to do? I don't know how it's going to turn out. I'm not saying, you know, make sure it's a God thing and do it because, man, it's going to be awesome and everything's going to work out just the way you'd hoped. I'm not telling you that. Not at all. But I will tell you what will happen. When you step out in faith because you're trusting God, when your act of faith intersects with his faithfulness, you'll know it and you'll trust him like never before. I mean, how smart is your God? How wise is your God? How well does he know you? Can he be trusted? Let me just give you a phrase and I'm going to be done. I'm going to give you a phrase that's not unique to me. I didn't come up with it. I heard it years ago. I've used it before, um, especially the teenagers. But just, just try this. To understand why, submit and apply. Can you say that with me? To understand why, submit and apply. Let's do it one more time. To understand why, submit and apply. Do you want to understand why God's doing what he's doing? I'll tell you how to find out. To understand why, submit and apply. You want to figure it out? Trust him. Obey him. To understand why, submit and apply. And at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, at the end of that extended period of time, we will know him. And you will have experienced him. You will have learned to trust him. And he will have what he wants from you, your love, your affection, the relationship that he paid so dearly to provide for all of us. I'm going to play a song. It's not a quiet, introspective song, but the lyrics are powerful. You probably know the song. Listen to this. <laughs> 